The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Lippin. Aftermath, read by Veronica Jaguer. Bella Dawn Parker wanted to sit in a corner, wrap her arms around herself, rock back and forth, and cry. She didn't have that luxury. She was still one of the few medics on the ground here, and there were casualties everywhere. Crying was for later. At least her folks were safe. That Cold War-era bunker her dad had herded everyone into had somehow escaped the attentions of the Nazi metas. Maybe it had looked too old, too abandoned, too archaic to matter. What had been state-of-the-art in 1950 wouldn't have held up too long against those energy cannons. The only reason that the bunker was expected to survive a direct nuclear hit on Groom Lake was because the eight floors of labs and offices above it would have served as a blade of armor. It had never been tested, of course, and nowadays one single bunker buster would have cut its way down there with no effort at all. As for the energy cannon, that was science fiction in 1950. The few, the very few, Metas that controlled some forms of energy and fire would never have gotten as far as the bunker anyway. Bella let her thoughts ramble while she served as a kind of automatic healing dispenser. Someone had found a supply of pure glucose solution. While people who qualified as walking wounded were being patched up by non-meta medics, she was hitting all the black tags. The victims triaged as not expected to survive, too badly hurt for conventional emergency medicine. Not for her and the guy serving as her coolie. He had a lab cart loaded down with bottles of glucose and was following her around while she went from triage point to triage point. She'd gulp down a bottle of glucose, lay her hands on the victim, and do her thing. It had never been so clear before. It was as if she could look inside them, see what was broken, and then, just like some strange special effects sequence, make it knit itself back together again. It was... scary was what it was. She'd have been freaked if she had any time to be freaked. But she had lost too many today, and she didn't intend to lose any more. Like crying, there would be time to be freaked later. Finally, she reached the main triage center, a big open court area in front of the vaults. Now, she'd only heard rumors about the vaults. Her folks didn't talk about what they did here. Rumor had it this was where all the weird-ass inventions that the U.S. government could get to before Echo did were kept. And this was where all the weird-ass weaponry went that government scientists, rather than Echo scientists, created. And, rumor had it, this was where all the alienware was from all those supposed flying saucer crashes confiscated by the government. Well, she didn't know anything about saucer aliens, but here were the vaults all right. They ringed a giant open space lit from above by a solid panel of... something. She'd never quite seen lighting like that before. The floor was something else she didn't recognize. Not concrete, because it was warm to the touch and deadened sound rather than reflecting it. Its once uniform gray surface was untouched by battle. There was one tunnel entrance coming into this place, and one going out. Forklifts, carts... Front-end loaders, other machines, 
presumably meant to get things too big to carry into and out of the vaults had been parked in orderly rows here. Someone had used a skid loader like a bulldozer, though, to shove a lot of it out of the way to make room for the injured and dying, being too impatient to start up and move each piece of equipment individually. Around the periphery were the vault doors, some of which were two stories tall, all of them shiny and silver-colored and with no visible way of getting them opened. The Nazis had been coming here. That much was clear by the path that Bella and her team had followed. But they hadn't actually gotten here because the makeshift meta-team had stopped them. There was only one vault door open now, one of the smaller ones, and a white fog coming from it suggested it was refrigerated. As Bella settled down by the side of the first man in the black tag section, she saw a lab-coated scientist with a pair of uniformed bruisers drive up to it in a little golf cart, pulling a wheeled platform loaded with Nazi bodies. They began carrying the bodies into the vault as she laid her bare hands on the man's pale, chilly forehead. Whatever disgust she might have felt at the vultures carrying on business as usual was swallowed up in the overwhelming sensations and half-sights coming to her from the man's broken body. She was jolted out of her trance sometimes later, Fortunately, she was mostly done at the time, by the sound of shouts and screaming. Her eyes flew open, her heart racing as she reached for the sidearm she'd been given. "'What?' she snapped at her assistant, who had his radio out. "'Something—' A smattering of voice and a surge of static came from it. "'Something's coming back. One of those flying things. It's—' Another babble of voices. More static. "'They say it's not firing—' But the metatroopers that they cornered upstairs and all the bodies are, like, flying towards it. Shut the vault! The imperious order rang out over some hidden PA system, and the door of the refrigerated vault began to swing ponderously closed. With a dull, booming sound, it came to rest, and the clank of what must have been huge bolts shooting home signaled that it was locked. And that was when the bodies still on the cart began to glow. Take cover! screamed one of the soldiers that had been moving the bodies into the vault a moment before. Instinctively, Bella and her helper ducked behind a forklift as the bodies glowed red-hot, then yellow, then white, then too bright to look at, and the metal cart they had been lying on slagged and sagged to the floor, the rubber tires going up in flames, triggering the overhead fire suppression system. Not sprinklers, no. A dozen nozzles protruded from the ceiling and doused just that spot with foam and a cooling mist which never even reached the injured. Within minutes, the fire was out, and the metal cooling down through red, but there was nothing left of the Nazi metatroopers but slagged metal indistinguishable from what was left of the flatbed and the little electric cart that had pulled it. The air was full of the smell of hot metal and burned plastic, although the ventilation system was quickly pulling all of the smoke and stench up towards the ceiling. What the hell? She gaped at the remains. I guess they didn't want us looking at their suits her helper said, and handed her a bottle of glucose. With that reminder, she gulped it down and moved on to the next victim. It got to the point where not even pure glucose was making up for all the energy she was putting out. She felt feverish, lightheaded, and oddly thinned out. Next to her, the vault door had been opened again, and from the activity inside, apparently whatever had caused the Nazi armor to melt down out here had not gotten through the vault shielding. At least three people were in there now, and it sounded busy. Her helper had been looking concerned for the last three victims, 
and now he put his hand on her shoulder. You need to stop now, ma'am, he said quietly. You're about to fall clean over. But the last of the black tags had been pulled back from the brink, and she was halfway through the red tags. Ma'am, the doctors from Nellis are here now. You can stop. And you better. The hand on her shoulder got heavier. I got my orders, ma'am. Nothing is supposed to happen to you, Echo says. Only now did she look at the logos on his fatigues and realize that this was no G.I. This was an Echo Mach 1. She felt herself flush. Can't let the prize cow drop, huh? She drawled, thinking angrily of how she had been pulled away from her station, her crew, when they needed her the most. Of course, she had been needed here too, but those were her guys, and some of them had been missing. Ma'am, I have my orders, he repeated. You can do what you can here, and I keep you in good shape while you're doing it, and then we go to Atlanta. Atlanta? she shouted. Like hell I'm going to Atlanta. When this is over, I'm going back to my crew, back to my station, and... The sound of someone shouting louder than she was interrupted them both as three men came stumbling out of the vault, two of the three looking green and the third looking white. "'Get the general!' shouted the white-faced one to one of the nearest soldiers. "'Get the echo re—' "'There you are!' he pointed at Bella's helper. "'Get in here! You have to see this!' "'I'm keeping tabs on our newest Mach 2.5,' the man began, his demeanor changing in an instant from subservient to commanding. "'There can't be anything in a pile of powered armor more important than that!' The white-faced man began to laugh hysterically. "'Oh, God!' he gasped. "'Oh, God, if you only knew! That's just it! It's what's in the armor!' Bella's erstwhile helper snorted. "'Metas! Man, I work for Echo. I've seen Mach 4s!' "'That's just it! They aren't human!' Stunned silence followed his words as everyone in the vault area turned, looked, and stared at him, Bella included. Finally, it was her helper who broke the silence. Exactly what does that mean? he asked cautiously. AIs? Cyborgs? Mutated gorillas? The white-faced man shook his head violently. Aliens, he whispered harshly, and began to laugh again. That's the joke. Don't you get it? All these years people have been thinking we were keeping alien shit here, and now they came after us. The white-faced man sat abruptly down on the floor and began to cry. Bella got up, took one of the glucose bottles and handed it to him, and began to soothe him. It felt like she was sending out waves of quietude, somehow. Like the mental blasts, like the vastly increased healing powers, this was just coming out of nowhere for her. At this point, she wasn't going to question it. She just used it. Her helper stood there uncertainly for a moment. Then his expression turned decisive. Don't let her get herself in trouble. I need to make a call. The president asked one of the green-faced men, with a gulp. No, 
The answer came back as the man sprinted up the tunnel, heading for the surface. Tesla. The fire captain watched the mountain sift through tons of rubble as though it were a giant sandbox. Jaws of Life, the remaining member of Echo Rescue, directed Meadows to be the giant's eyes and ears, and thus ensure he did not crush potential survivors with his immense fingers. If we had the use of him just once a month, I could retire early, the captain told Ramona. What a sight. Hell, you should hire him out as a bulldozer on the weekends. You'd have to follow him with a highway maintenance crew. Ramona pointed at the deep indentations in the lawn. It would cost more to get him to a job site than hire a conventional crew. Plus, he's... cranky. Seems to be having fun right now. That's because he feels useful. I don't think it'll last. She peered through the gloom of the dusk to gauge the giant's expression. Shadows concealed it. Poor bastard. The captain trotted off to direct ambulances, at once grim and gratified. Ramona sipped her coffee, letting the warmth dull the pain in her ribs. She had refused a trip to the hospital. There was too much to do. She scanned the sky for her scout. Ten feet up, Mercury sped across the ravaged lawn and slowed to a halt before her. He stepped down onto the ground. His expression was easy to read. No luck? She guessed. Nothing. No sign of the Commandant or his lady or your shape-changing friend, assuming I would even recognize him. I retraced your path through detention. He took a deep breath. It's a charnel house. I doubt there's a prisoner left alive. Ramona perked up. Hey, there's one! I forgot about him and all the noise. She scratched a name down on a pad. Get this to Cheryl. She can look up his file. Mercury's shoulder sagged. He shook his head slowly. I'm sorry. They found her body an hour ago. Oh. Cold gripped her stomach. Well then, I guess I have to do my own legwork, huh? Her eyes drifted to the ground. Suddenly, Cheryl's face became indistinct in her mind. Yeah, part of my job, you know? She sucked on her lip. Word stopped coming. Mercury enclosed Ramona in his arms. Grief hit her like a freight train. Go ahead, it's fine, he said. Jesus Christ, she said between sobs. And I was holding it together all this time. I was doing good. Ramona's tears smeared on his bare, dust-encrusted chest. Mercury stroked her hair for ten minutes while she bawled like a baby. Her breath returned in gasps. Okay, I just have to tell you, I don't normally cry like this. Crime scenes, mangled corpses... Beheaded cheerleaders. I'm a pro. You wouldn't be the first person to lose it today. Oh, yeah? You seem composed. Maybe Metas don't cry.
They do, he said. But they can also find a cloud bank to hide in. A chuckle escaped through the sobs. She gave him a squeeze. Thanks, handsome. Back to work, I suppose. We need Slick's dossier from the database. Mercury shook his head. Totaled. Alex took a team of programmers to rescue what data he could. Damn. The Echo MetaHuman database had been fed by virtually every law enforcement agency in the world. Algorithms so elaborate as to approach artificial intelligence sifted that data into categories of relevance. It was the greatest tool a detective could have had for tracking a fugitive. Another setback. Time for a cigarette. Eisenfaust was our key, Mark, Ramona said between grateful puffs. That Bermuda Triangle story sounded like a weak TV pilot until his former comrades-in-arms came knocking on the door to shut him up. Doppelganger was on him like stink on a dog. What he told Slick was important enough that he didn't even try to fight for his life. I have to find that perp. The details of the incident were becoming hazy in her mind, just like every witness she interviewed. Certain details outshine the others. Soon all that's left is a snapshot. She needed to write it all down. Better still, she needed to find out if the Echo Hypnotist had escaped being crushed under tons of concrete. Somewhere in her mind was a videotape of the entire day he could summon from her. At least he's ugly, Mercury said. Hard to conceal that. That makes it worse, she said. He'll avoid contact entirely. Fewer witnesses. If he has any sense, he'll head for the swamp. God, if only Eisenfaust had given a proper statement, we'd have been ready for this attack. The devil was in the details, she thought. One small piece of information could have saved Cheryl's life and thousands of others. Mercury snapped his fingers in realization, a gesture so corny that Ramona found it immediately endearing. That reminds me, Alex wants me to transport Eisenfaust's body to a secure location. Her brow furrowed. Really? That's odd. Plenty of ambulances here. Orders are orders. He grimaced at the makeshift morgue across the lawn, where hundreds of body bags had been lined up for identification and tagging. Let me know if you need help with Slick. Things will be chaotic here for a while. I'll call you when I find something worth sharing. Call anyway. Keep me in the loop. He flashed her a smile. Okay? Her cheeks warmed. Okay. Now scoot. Mercury tipped his helmet to her. Off to the underworld, he said before leaving. Ramona watched him approach the grim black line of corpses, a man given the duties of a god. Scattered, smothered, covered, and chunked. Alex Tesla did not have to think hard to answer the question. Vanilla Coke. Two. Eggs over easy. And tell Sylvia that I'm all right. The Omega Airlines official scribbled the order on a pad of paper. Tell Sylvia. Got it. I'll head out now. Is there anything else you need? A time machine, 
Alex thought. A way to go back and save every employee of mine who died today. Nothing else. Thanks. We appreciate it. Our pleasure, sir. The official pushed his glasses up his nose and hurried off to Alex's favorite waffle house to bring back food for the crew. Alex's stomach rumbled. Comfort food. Every little bit helps. A guard stopped them as they approached a checkpoint in the underground tunnel. The man was apologetic but firm as he indicated an aging retinal scanner. Just a formality, folks. Of course. Alex wondered how his eyes must look to the machine. Bloodshot, exhausted. The devastation at the Echo Campus had consumed his life. The machine dazzled him with a bright flash. The guard handed him a visitor badge. His face was somber and respectful. The others took their place at the scanner. Shakti, each one of her four hands holding a bag of equipment. Isan Muhammad, Echo's lead programmer, whose broken leg had been bound to a wheelchair, though he had refused painkillers. And Jules and Laura Cavers, fresh from the Belgian office and sightseeing at the time of the attack. The Fool Society's Blitzkrieg attack on the Echo Campus ending abruptly with an improbable magnetic evacuation by the war machines, had taken a dreadful toll. Early estimates ranged from half to two-thirds of the Echo Meta population, and possibly more of non-powered personnel. Three hundred employees. Dead. Over the years, Alex had met their families, signed their Christmas bonuses, negotiated for their health insurance rates. Merely firing an employee could leave him in a funk for a day or two. This loss demolished him. He was a shell of a man, yet his intellect issued him orders to carry on. A heartless to-do list for a man who had lost his heart. Echo owned its own communication satellite for the comm system, yet from the moment of the attack the comm system had gone dead. Techs worked to reroute it to the local cell towers. The computer network, physically damaged from the collapse of the administration building, had suffered an attack of its own. A malignant virus ripped through the system and destroyed all data by changing binary code to strings of zeros. In minutes, the virus had cleared out every hard drive left on the campus and clawed its way into other Echo server farms across the world. Jules Kivers had dubbed it Lebensraum, the Nazi word for elbow room used to fire up the nationalistic fervor of despondent Germans after World War I. Lebensraum had become the second ruthless digital wave of the invasion. His wife, Lauren, had suggested a call to Omega. She had written code for the airline decades before and watched them construct a hardened underground computer reservations and operations facility using government funding. The entire system operated on copper landlines, which hadn't been updated to fiber optic cable or satellite feeds. The advantages of such a primitive system were obvious. The facility was still online while the rest of the country struggled to reconnect the internet trunks that the Nazis had bombed while tearing through outlying regions on their way to attack urban areas. Scanned and cleared, the tech led them through a pair of glass doors and down a corridor where the giant springs that supported the installation and protected it from shockwaves of earthquake magnitude were visible through painted grills. The Cold War paranoia invoked by the precautions did not seem so outlandish today. The control room had been modernized and decorated with faded Omega destination posters. Greece, Rio de Janeiro, Rome. 
They made Alex want to talk to every single one of the 50 Echo facilities in the world. He settled into a desk and opened his laptop as his companions powered theirs up. The Omega Tech handed out Ethernet cables like they were Halloween treats. Let's see what we have, Alex said. Yelson typed code into his command line interface at a machine gun speed. Connecting now. Two mainframes left in Atlanta. Infected mainframes, snapped Jules. I'll be careful. The Omega Tech eyed the programmers with trepidation. I, uh, gave you all direct lines to the trunk. You won't be able to access the Omega Reservation database. We could if we wanted to, Lauren said, not taking her eyes from her screen. Behave, Sherry, Jules said. Make nice. Desolé, she muttered. Jules offered the tech a wink and began to hook the portable raid to a hub for all the laptops to access. They hoped to scrape the data out of the network before Liebenschraum wiped it clean. A silence descended on the room, punctuated by keyboard taps and whirring hard drives. Ilsen sucked air through his teeth. After the third time, Alex shot him an inquiring glance. Whoever wrote Liebenschraum is an evil genius. It's clawing at my firewall right now. He shook his head. The porch should be closed. Damn it. With a fast movement, Isan popped the battery out of his laptop, shutting it off instantly. His dusky face had gone pale. That fast? Lauren said. Isan nodded. Alex did not like the fear and confusion in his crew's faces. Try Chicago. Try L.A. Hell, try Paris. The virus can't be that aggressive. The statement felt foolish as he completed it. Just... just try. Shakti set a phone on his desk with a sheet of paper covered in numbers. We're ready. Dial nine to reach an outside line. Where to start? You call Europe. I'll call the U.S. When you're done, start at the end of the list. The Indian Meta took her seat and two phones in her hands. Her free hands danced across a laptop keyboard, stopping only to dial a new number. The news was grim from every facility. Albuquerque, 20 Metas dead, two missing. Amarillo, no survivors. Baltimore, major damage, and virtually all Metas killed in an ambush. Boston, demolished. Fifty met his dead. The voices on the line were dull with anguish, as if they were just waiting for the day to end. Alex kept the discussion short, issuing crisp orders for the able-bodied personnel to assist local law enforcement and patrol for lingering Nazi units. Yet the reports were the same. Massive loss of life, no sign of the troopers. The food arrived. Alex stuffed himself with greasy fried potato shreds and drank Sylvia's hand-flavored vanilla Coke before dialing the number to Chicago's Echo facility. This is Alex Tesla, he said. Alex, thank God I've been hearing reports. Are you all right? It was Fata Morgana, now assistant director after retiring from Mach 1 duty, when a bullet had given her a permanent limp. Our casualties could have been far worse. What's your status? One casualty, otherwise all present and accounted for. What? Alex said. His crew stared at him as he rose to his feet. Civilians? 
a few injuries. She sounded unsure. It's a little hard to explain. Try me, Fata. Fata Morgana took a deep breath. I think there were four waves at each cardinal directions around our compound. The police band lit up with reports of the troopers raising hell. I split our teams and sent them out, but by the time they reached the scene, all they found was a pile of armored corpses with prescriptions on them. His jaw dropped. You're kidding me. I'm not. Prescriptions? One on each, all with the same message. She paused. Do you want to hear this? It's not a joke. Shakti stood before him with questioning eyes. He shook his head and took up a pen. Go ahead. Fata cleared her throat. Diagnosis, evil. Prescription, justice. From the desk of Dr. Dusk. Dr. Dusk? Yes. The sound of paper shuffling trickled over the phone speaker. We have about five hundred of these. Five hundred downed troopers. And three war machines dunked into the Great Lakes. We're dredging them out now. Alex paced to the length of the phone cord. Analysis? he asked sharply. Unidentified Mach 4? Fata sounded sure. That's what I was just thinking. Excitement crept into his voice. No sightings before today? None. No prior evidence of this Dr. Dusk character. I think he must have come into his powers as the invasion took place. There are precedents for that all over the books. But Alex, those troopers show no wounds. We haven't had a chance to crack their armor open yet, and it's still as shiny and smooth as the mirror in my bathroom. Okay, let me think. Alex ran figures through his head. Fata, can you get by with five metas? Fata paused. Yes, sure. You want the rest of my crew? Shakti will call you with deployment instructions. We lost a lot of friends today. Every healthy meta will be needed. Just give the word, Fata said. But there's one more thing. We lost one meta. Not a field op, a patient at the research facility. I thought you said the Nazis never came close. They didn't. It was Matthew March. The autistic clairvoyant, right? Alex said. He was bedridden. Did his heart give out? No. Suicide. He set himself on fire. Alex tried to remember March's dossier. He could move. Evidently, he could move and write. He left a note. It's rough reading. Save it. I need to deal with the threat at hand first. Then I'll be ready for further predictions of doom. Alex concluded the call and sank back in his chair. A sigh escaped him. Fata had provided the first piece of good news today, but it came with a mystery attached, one that would have to wait for an answer. Shakti slid over a list of casualties from Europe. Across the board, hundreds of metas had been lost, hundreds more non-powered personnel, and the civilian casualty estimates mounted every hour as more bodies were found. 
the Thule Society had wielded their shock troops like a scalpel, slicing deep into the infrastructure of every target country. The Newswire reported attacks in remote locations like the Congo and Tibet, yet the bulk of enemy forces had assailed major cities in the richest nations of the world, with the exception of Germany. The birthplace of National Socialism was untouched. The German government had scrambled to issue a statement condemning the attacks before the smoke had cleared. Their parliament was meeting at this very moment to send aid to the affected developing countries. Yet their offers of peacekeeping forces went unheeded. The world watched their every action with suspicion. Call the rest of the American bases, he told Shakti. I need to think. Shakti laid a spare hand on his shoulder. You need to rest, sir. An exhausted leader makes hasty decisions. The Indian woman spoke without reclamation, but her serious tone overcame matters of rank. I know, I know, but it's important that they hear. She cut him off. They will hear from you in time. Echo facilities were designed to act autonomously in times of crisis. This is such a time. Our comfort is of minor importance. What matters is the actions Echo takes next. Finding the Nazis, he said. Yes, sir, but that is a job for Echo metahumans. Shakti's voice hardened. We're eager for a rematch, believe it. But you yourself are the face of Echo to the world. Right now that face is too haggard to win back the public's trust. I don't follow you, he said. We protect the public. All they see is two metahuman forces waging war against each other. Most take our side, but some will question why they have been caught in the crossfire. She raised a finger to still his tongue. Regardless of who instigated it. Blame the victim, he said with bitterness. Do not fall into such thinking. Warriors can never be victims. We have accepted the risks. She sounded to Alex as though she had had this argument before. You have a new war on your hands. Keep us in the people's hearts. Alex took a deep breath. Shakti was right, and he should have recognized this problem twelve hours ago. In the modern world of instant communication, you cannot wait to explain your position, lest you find your enemies have explained it for you. The most casual observer of presidential elections knew this maxim. He scribbled a number on the list. Call this number and ask for the spin doctor. Tell him Alex is calling in that favor. Right away. The woman flashed him a rare smile that was momentarily dazzling. Now you will get some sleep, yes? Not quite yet. Hope, as dangerous as it was intoxicating, bubbled through Alex. He would control the situation. He would not be beaten. Isan, report. Have you gotten through yet? The Turkish programmer groaned. Liebenschram has brutalized the network unhindered, thanks to the attack. His voice betrayed the pain his leg was causing him. Anyone who could have thrown up a defense was killed or running for their lives. No matter. I have a solution. The programmers perked up. He fished out an unlabeled CD-ROM from his laptop case. This software may do the trick. Lauren stood and took the CD. What is it? Black ice? Something illegal? 
Alex thought fast. The CD contained a simple, unbranded gateway protocol. Into the Metis computers deep under the Andes, where Uncle Tesla and Enrico Fermi's electrical intelligence matrices lorded over the system like kings. Every byte of echo data was duplicated in their vast banks of the secret science city's holographic storage devices. If anyone could resist Liebenschraum's destructive rampage, it would be living computer programs derived from the brain patterns of the greatest scientific minds in the history of the world. Revealing that secret to the uninitiated, however, was another matter. Something from Homeland Security, he said. Jules blew a raspberry. <laughs> Those amateurs? Trust me, this is powerful stuff. Give it a try. I'm sure it'll do a heck of a job, he muttered as his wife ran the install on her machine. Alex rubbed his hands together. He'd solve two problems, for now at least. What next? Shakti's arched eyebrow answered that question. Sleep. Two hours, he promised. Wake me up then. It's going to be a long, long night. Odors arising from I-285 could have wafted from the armpit of Satan himself. Burned asphalt, rubber, and human flesh. Handsome Devil adjusted his filter mask yet again in a futile attempt to protect his surviving olfactory senses. His burned palms stung under filthy bandages as they gripped the shovel handle. No amount of luck could keep blisters from breaking and oozing. Okay, big guy. You can tell me. This is some kind of Mach 2 hazing, right? Incorrect. Silent Night's speaker barked. All able hands are needed. Tesla wants specimens of the troopers. Handsome Devil held up his hands, palms outward, showing blood and pus-soaked cotton. Did these hands look able to you? You are metahuman. The armored man resumed digging as if this had answered the question. <laughs> well, he won't get anything here but char-broiled fascists on the half-shell. Why don't you just blast the pile with a shockwave or two like the walking bulldozer you are? Silent Knight paused for a moment before continuing to dig. Klaus had a surge of guilt. The metahuman had suffered greatly to wear the clumsy, concussion-absorbing armor. He was so devoted to duty that he did not even have a home, just a small room on the Echo Campus. Even that modest abode had been destroyed by the Nazis. I'm getting cranky. It's not his fault we're all stuck here, Klaus thought. I should apologize. Before he could speak, Contrayer Zone appeared behind him with Bowser, the bull mastiff who had saved his life. Nice mouth, devil. Why don't you make fun of retarded children next? I wasn't. Ah, oh, hell, I can't please anyone today. Just show the man some respect sometime, Zone said, and turned his back on handsome devil. Devil slumped over his shovel. Sam Cook's chain gang started to run through his head. He watched the Mach 2 dog trainer summon his dogs to him for another round of foraging for survivors. 
Bowser paused to look at Devil with his watery brown eyes and perpetually solemn expression. What, you two? The dog licked Devil's hand and bounded off after his master. Superdog slobber dripped off his fingers. Ew, thanks for nothing, Pooch. Nevertheless, the canine gesture made him feel a bit less put upon. At least someone appreciated his efforts, even if that someone ran on four legs and licked his own privates at will. The debris kicked up by the exploding war machines had accumulated to a height of three feet around Ground Zero. According to reports, other contingents of troopers had been scooped up by some kind of magnetic grapple. Even dead troopers made the retreat thanks to Nazi technology. Or rather, full society technology, Matea had informed him, courtesy of an update from Echo headquarters, which, thanks to the devastation he had caused on the highway, Devil had not even visited since the attack. Shakti gave him a buzz on the police band and filled him in on the grim details. Hundreds of metas and mock-ops dead or injured are missing in action. The main building demolished. The prisoners butchered in their cells. The mountain's dramatic and destructive cavalry charge. No one could have survived the firestorm, he told himself as he resumed digging. Anyone trapped on the highway would have been broken by the trooper's energy beams or incinerated by the thermite dropping from the sky. The Nazis had descended on the jammed-up freeway so swiftly that no opposition force could have prevented casualties. It was good fortune that Atlanta was so flat. The motorist could see the mayhem and flee on foot before it reached them. Otherwise, thousands more would have died without time to escape. Yet a thought so horrendous to acknowledge nagged at him. What if there were civilians alive in the cars below the war machines he had destroyed? The troopers employed a scorched-earth strategy, killing as they advanced. Cars burned in their wake. Still, someone could have lived through all that until handsome devils set the sky aflame and sealed their fate. In times of war, the innocent die first. Yet Shakti had dashed through their ranks. Surely she would have spotted survivors and told him. But what if she were protecting his conscience? Klaus hated guilt, hated it passionately. All his life he had practiced a policy of detachment. Things usually turned out just fine, given his extraordinary luck. If not, well, it was fate, was it not? His shovel clanked against metal, the gauntlet of a trooper. Perhaps this is why the Mach 2s put him to work, in hopes that his luck would turn up something worth studying. He scraped the shovel across the concrete debris to clear it from the trooper's body. The rubble shifted and the hand fell free. It had been burned off at the elbow. Ugh! Devil caught a glimpse of the blackened stump, bone, cartilage, and sinew. Reflexively, he kicked it away. Scout, Contrayer Zone's rat terrier, sailed through the air and caught the hand in his mouth. Tail wagging, he trotted back to his master. Yeah, you do that, pup, he said, plopping to the ground. All he wanted was a bath, preferably with a Shakti in it. Any fool could push a shovel. Why should that fool be him? The longer he was stuck here, the more likely he was to stumble across the corpse of some poor bastard caught in the conflagration he had created. <laughs>
That kind of nightmare image he didn't need floating around in his head. He already planned to sit down with Doc Bootstrap. Frustration welled up in him like a cough. He hurled the shovel at the pile. The shovel ricocheted off a slab precariously balanced on a car fender. The entire side of the pile sloughed off like a snakeskin, revealing the possessor of the hand. A dead trooper. The smell hit him first. Vinegar, like the captain he had killed on the war machine. Bingo! He called to the other metas. The dogs heard him first. Zone's pack bounded over as though finding a fox in a bush. The superdogs encircled the body, noses twitching. Bowser sneezed. Klaus waggled his finger at them. Back! No snacks for you! The dogs cringed and pressed themselves against the asphalt. As one, they began to howl. Oh, jeez, Klaus said, rubbing his eyes. The cacophony was enough to drive him over the edge. Cut it out! He's dead, you stupid mutts! Contrayer's own had approached from his blind side. They understand English, thank you very much. And they're not mutts. I wasn't... Oh, forget it. It's not worth arguing about. He pointed at the body. There. Can I go home now? Zone frowned. They're spooked. He squatted amongst the dogs and whispered to them. The howling continued. You did feed them, right? Shut up, Zone said. Something's wrong. Yes. We call that Nazis. Klaus glared at him. Silent Knight stepped between them. The two metas grew as silent as the armored man's nom de guerre. Without a word, Silent Knight crouched by the body. He dislodged it from the rubble. The dogs yelped and backed away. What's that smell? Zone said. Silent Knight undid the clasps on his helmet. His blonde hair was matted and dark from sweat. He sniffed the air with authority. I told you, Devil said to a scowling zone. That war machine captain smelled the same, like a salad gone bad. Knight can smell it, can't you, buddy? He's deaf without his helmet. Can you be more insensitive? Christ! Zone stepped up to the armored man and signed a question to him in sign language. Knight's metal-shod fingers flickered in response. Zone nodded thoughtfully. Both men had their backs to devil, as though he were a child. Sign language. Great. I bet he's got a charity set up for stray dogs, too. Devil knew he was being petulant, and he didn't care. Hadn't he done his job earlier? Who else had wiped out so many troopers? It's Miller time, he decided. Well, my work here is done. Time for me to mosey along, cowpokes. The two ignored him, signing furiously as they crouched by the body. You hear? I'm gone. Going. History. Silent Knight pulled his helmet on with a practiced motion and nudged his own aside. A low subsonic hum commenced to rattle Devil's teeth. The dogs whined. With a thundercrack, Knight blasted the trooper's helmet off. It bounced off a car and sailed into the distance like a pinball. 
Contrayer Zone's pack howled in anguish and fear as a wave of foul odor hit them. The vinegar stench made Devil's eyes water. Dear God, Zone said, holding his nose, but he leaned over the body. To a chorus of condemnation from the natural world, Handsome Devil crept towards the corpse that he already knew was not of this world. Red Savior, jerked awake from a fitful half-nap, haunted by dreams of daggers and swastikas. The sounds of UTC military personnel stomping past her tent, shouting orders, hauling equipment to helicopters. These converged into a white noise that had allowed her exhaustion to overwhelm her. Her eyes itched with frustration at being rested away from desperately needed rest. She'd been awake since the Nazis slaughtered her people three days ago. Sitting up so abruptly caused her bruised and fractured ribs to howl in protest. When she had finally permitted the paramedics to examine her after the Savior's Gate massacre, so the world media had already labeled it, they wanted to send her to the hospital at once. Her strenuous objections intimidated them enough that they settled for binding her torso in stiff bandages and rubbing salve into her burns. The look in the medic's eyes reminded Natalia that she was both more and less than human. A metahuman. The ribs had already knitted themselves together. Natalia sat stiffly at the edge of her cot. She couldn't bend over without aggravating her wounds, and massaged her temples. The clock on her laptop read 4.15 p.m., an hour after she lay down to close her eyes for a moment. Something had registered subconsciously to rouse her from what could have been a deep sleep. Call me Sarge Savior? The soldier's voice was timid. You have a visitor. He can wait, comrade, she said. She knew she shouldn't sleep while the Nazi invaders were still on the loose, somewhere in the countryside, but she could enjoy a moment of solitude for a few more minutes. The tent flap opened. A short, balding man stepped inside with an air of entitlement, his features lost in the glare of the harsh northwestern Oakrick summer sun. His silhouetted form wore a windbreaker over a suit and tie, as if he'd come from a board meeting. Two hulking forms stood behind him. Out, she snarled, whoever you are, unless you have news of the fascistas. That's just what I was going to ask you, Natalia Nikolaevna. The man stepped forward so that the lamp illuminated the face associated with the familiar voice. She struggled to her feet. President Putin, she blurted. Isn't it? I didn't mean. Putin held up his hands. No, please, don't get up. He moved forward to clasp her hand and guide her back down to the cot. They warned me you were badly injured. Give yourself a rest. Smiling warmly, he sat down on the cot next to her to force her to sit. She blushed and found a comfortable position that put the least amount of strain on her ribs. Spasibo, sir, she said. I have looked forward to meeting you for a long time. I regret that it could be not under more relaxed circumstances. The bags under his eyes told her that he hadn't slept much since the attack either. 
The Major General provided me with a detailed briefing, but I want to hear your perspective of the events. They are the same, I'm sure, she said, uncomfortable at his unblinking gaze. The terrorists traveled, packed in delivery trucks to the square. They attacked the protesting crowd, bearing signs against her, and killed most of my comrades before we fought them off. Putin pressed his lips together. The silence stretched until she thought she'd burst. At last he said, Have you been following the news? Da, sir. Attacks worldwide with the same blitzkrieg tactics. He shook his head slowly, as though she were a child. That is not the news I mean. Russian news. Pravda. He released her hand. They have a name for the incident. The Savior's Gate Massacre. No. Putin's gaze was steady. Another name. Red Savior's Massacre. Her chest constricted. Who? Why? I, I don't understand. Critics have seized upon the attack as an opportunity to criticize the government. You have made a convenient target lately. Her fists clenched. That is unacceptable. Now is the time for Russians to pull together, not bigger. You must silence them. Putin laughed coldly. Oh, by sending them to the Gulag? It is the 21st century, not 1950. You think like a dinosaur. He gestured at her. That is the problem. I think Nazis and powered armor is the problem. Excuse me for saying, Comrade President. Her words stumbled out before she could correct her form of address. But we're camped in the shadow of Polariazori, a nuclear reactor. We have eyewitnesses that saw the Nazi warships pass directly overhead, over our nuclear facility, over Mermanx and the nuclear subs, unhindered. Natalia's face burned. I think that is a more serious security threat than what some nattering kulaks in the press say about me. Putin backed away from the cot. She hadn't realized how much anger she was projecting. His bodyguards dropped their hands to their belts. Forgive me, sir, she said. I'm very tired and frustrated. It makes me cranky. Our satellites have been destroyed. The Nazis disappeared off ground-based radar minutes after the attack, and we haven't picked up their trail yet. This is at the forefront of my mind. And so it should be, Putin said cautiously. Just as the perception of the government is my priority. He let the sentence hang. We'll find them, sir. We'll find them and hang them for what they did. To my team, she added to herself. To the innocents in the square. Thirty-six hours, and you've turned up nothing. The president spoke with care. The trail is cold, but I think our friends in America have a lead for you. Without prompting... One of his guards produced a folder for her. How was your English? Is being flawless with no accent, she replied in English. The folder contained a printout of a communique and a pair of photographs, and a dossier reproduced from Great Patriotic War Records. Eisenfaust, she read from the photo's caption. Your father's old enemy. She glanced at the dossier. His deceased enemy? This is sixty years old. What do I care about the Nazis? I'm hunting life ones. Putin smiled. Eisenthaus turned himself in to echo the day before the invasion. Alive and well. Until... 
he pointed at the second photograph. Natalia fished it out and winced. The graininess tipped her off that it was a capture from a spy satellite feed. The same face, young, proud, and square-jawed, had been smashed to a pulp and was now framed in a body-bag shroud. The timestamp on the photo dated it the day of the invasion. Govno, she breathed. A caption in Russian read, Killed by intruders during siege of Echo Campus. It is puzzling, and thus a clue to our puzzle. Read the first message from Mr. Tesla. The stationery bore the alchemical symbol for air. Echo's logo, jagged from the low-quality fax. It was dated the day before the attack. We have a guest at our facility who claims to be none other than Eisenfaust, the war criminal lost at sea at the end of World War II. Death appears to have treated him well. He hasn't aged a day. This man says that he has important information to impart. His story is dubious, but he insists that we confirm his identity with someone who knows him. And most of the names he gave us are of World War II heroes long dead from old age. However, there are two still alive, Workers' Champion and Red Savior. May we fly them to Atlanta to meet with this man? All expenses paid, of course. If it turns out to be a hoax, I'd be honored to treat them to a night on the town and pay their consultation fee. Thank you for your time and consideration, Mr. President. Alex Tesla, CEO, Echo. It is a coincidence, she said. Why did he ask for me? For your father, actually. But I'd like you to go and meet Mr. Tesla. In the past, we have resisted Echo's efforts to establish Russian branches of their organization, but in light of current events... His voice trailed off, awkward. You mean the obliteration of CCCP? I'm sorry, yes. In the controversy surrounding the way the attack was handled, he held up his hands again, which I do not personally question, of course. I know warfare is a slippery thing, but it puts me in a very difficult position. Half the public wants to give you a medal, but the other half wants you jailed for gross incompetence. It does me little good to appease either side. She gritted her teeth. You know we did the best we could. I know. Now you must let me do the best I can. He pointed to the dossier. Accompany workers' champion and your father to America. Interface with Mr. Tesla about Echo's intelligence efforts on the Nazis. They suffered more than we did. Let the Fuhrer cool down. Let the dead be buried in peace. Rest and recover. I can't rest while they're still out there to strike again. We'll be ready for them. He paused and bit his lip. It is best that I tell you this in person. The FSO has been ordered to decommission CCCP for the time being. We've activated the Supernaut program to fill the gap. Natalia leapt to her feet, ignoring the pain in her ribs. Что? Putin's guards interposed themselves between her and the president. We cannot leave Russia undefended. I'm sure you'll agree. He didn't wait for her reply. CCCP has been gutted. I'm sorry, that's a poor choice of words. Hindered by a personnel reduction. While you had the investigation into the whereabouts of the terrorists, the supernaut squadrons would be activated to guard key targets. I thought you'd appreciate the homage to your comrade's sacrifice. So, they have renamed the military personnel armor program after supernaut. That pompous, overbearing, ambitious boar. What about the others that died? Da, it is fitting tribute. She grumbled. Especially since Vasily Georgievich was little more than a puppet for the Kremlin anyway. She left that thought unvoiced.
Good. Then it is settled. He brushed his hands together. I will repair your reputation in Russia, and you will find these killers for me. And what you do, Natalia Nikolaevna? The curtains of diplomacy seemed to open to reveal a furnace of anger to her, a heat to be shared between grieving siblings. Do not be gentle with them. That is a promise I can keep, Comrade President. She gave him a crisp salute, which he acknowledged with a confidential smile. Make me proud, Natalia. Putin turned and pushed past his guards. They followed him out of the tent, leaving Red Savior alone with her thoughts and the story of Eisenfaust's life and death, rendered in black and white in her hands. As the smoke rose and the flames died, Seraphim remained, an unmoving, ever-watchful icon atop the SunTrust Plaza building, taking only sporadic part in what lay below her. She knew everything that was going on, of course. Her connection to the Infinite allowed her, if not omniscience, then certainly broad and deep knowledge within a limited sphere. The futures were still settling. Out there, metahumans whose powers had been awakened during the worldwide battle, or those who had finally acknowledged those powers and the need to use them for good, were deciding to come to Atlanta, or not. And as for Seraphim herself, the multiple futures would drive a mortal mad. All these possibilities, most of them ending in blood, terror, and death, and the Tholians ruling as despots over a world enslaved. It was hard, so hard, to thread the way through the futures. Most of the ones that ended in a free world had a maddening blank spot in the middle. Futures that she could not see her way to, even with her connection to the infinite. She could only steer her way by avoiding the worse, finding the abyss by avoiding the edges of it as best she could. She could not be everywhere, but she did not act nearly as often as mortals thought she should. And there were those who saw her for more what she was that did not understand why their faith was not rewarded by her presence in their moment of peril. But she had to choose, and she had to make her choices by the paths of the future. Some were crucial to it, those she had to save. She heard in her heart the wail of why, why him and not me, and she could have answered it, but the answer would have shattered them. In some hearts and minds, she watched as long buried fires broke through the insulating cover of the ashes of the past and began to reawaken. She watched as new possible futures spun off from their decisions and began to sort and categorize those futures. This desirable. That not. It was not yet time to act, however. Though the Tholians had placed their counters on the board, the resistance had been greater than they supposed, and they were still sorting through their possible options. And then... She felt it. A mind. A mortal mind, in unimaginable torment. A mind that, like hers, saw the futures. It was far away in mortal terms, but not far for her. And this could not should not be. Mortals were not meant to know the futures. Not as she did. Not as this mind did. And this mind did not want to. It cried out in pain and fear. She opened her heart to the infinite. Is this permitted? She asked. Instantly came the response. It is.
they called Matthew March autistic as a child. What no one had known was that he was not closed into a world of his own. He was far, far too open to the real one. From the time he was eight, he had seen things, seen what would happen to people around him. But more than that, seen what might happen to the people around him. The older he got, the more might-haves he saw, until he was surrounded by them, choked by them, and he became paralyzed, not by confusion, but by his inability to choose. This one, and not that one. Help a friend, who would later kill a child in a hit-and-run accident while drunk. Keep a girl from heartbreak, only to have her grow into a lawyer who successfully defended known criminals. He could not choose. He could not. His inability to act confined him to a bed, his muscles atrophied, and only a few psychics could fish out his most powerful visions from his mind. And that had been enough. Until today. Until now. When the attack began and all he saw was the beginning and people dying everywhere, and in the end, in the future, far but not far enough. Slaughter. Terror. Horror. Everywhere he looked, the end was the same. He felt himself screaming inside, helpless, hopeless. And then she came. She was in his mind, but so much clearer than the psychics he was used to working with. And then she embraced him, somehow, sheltered him from his terrible visions, and held him while he cried. Was she only in his mind? He so seldom opened his eyes any more. She was real. And she was beautiful. And she was, must be, an angel. Nothing else could look like that, so powerful, so strange, so otherworldly. She was wrapped in flame, and her wings were afire, furled closely against her back. Her eyes, her eyes were red and had no pupils. They looked on him, and he sensed she was seeing too many ways for him to comprehend. How did you? She smiled, sadly. None will disturb us while I am here. I hold us out of time. He began to tremble. What I see, is that what's going to happen? She hesitated. It is most probable. He began to cry. He couldn't stand this. He couldn't. This time it wasn't inability to act that paralyzed him. It was that there was no way for him to make a difference. It was the end. The end of everything good, everything worth living for. I don't want to see it. Then you need not. He went very still, taken aback. I... how? I can take you with me. It is permitted. She stretched out her arms to him. Wait, he said seeing a tiny, tiny glimmer of hope in the mad tangle of death and destruction. I need to warn them. She nodded gravely. He scrabbled for the pen and pad of paper kept at his bedside for the psychics that ventured into his brain. Hastily he scrawled everything he could, then pitched the pad as far away from his bed as his weak and uncoordinated arms could manage. Now. Now I'm ready. Come to me, child she whispered, her power shielding him from the pain as the light opened up before him. I will take you home.
Seraphim returned to her perch only minutes after she had left it. Metis with the power of flight came up to her perch, some to try and speak with her, to convince her to help them. But she had her own path to follow this day, and it was not theirs. As always, some could see what she was, and some could not. She ignored them, not one who came to her was one who had any great part in the web of futures as she saw them. The futures. The same futures Matthew had seen. Then came one she could not ignore, purely because of his persistence. The face and body of a god, and the name of one too, if not the power. Tesla's messenger trod up the air to her, and stared. He was carrying the body, the body of Eisenfaust. Why he had come to her? She was on the way to where he was to take this sad corpse. He had seen her flames. He had heard about her, and he did not know her. And he was passionate in his loyalty to Echo and Tesla, and he would, if there was any chance, lure her to them. Who are you? he asked finally. I am what I am. What you see. He started, his head jerking a little, to hear her voice in his mind. I mean, are you a mutant? Is this all some sort of illusion? The only illusions are those that come from within you, and prevent you from seeing me, truly. It was more words than she had ever had with a mortal. Echo needs you. Echo must go on needing. I am not Tesla's property. I serve another power. But... She sensed his anger, his frustration. She couldn't blame him. Echo did need, with so many dead, so much in ruins. Echo needed. Tesla would have to find his answers elsewhere. You can't, he began, his voice rising a little. She raised her eyes at last, and looked at him, saw all that him laid out bare before her. Every memory, every thought, everything he was ashamed of, everything he dreamed of. She felt him understand what she was doing, sensed him recoiling from the things he would never, ever have revealed to another living soul. Of course, she was not precisely living. She saw his immediate future, the ship come to take him to a place he had never even dreamed of, to a new course for his life that she did not allow him to be aware of. Only a few, a very few, mortals would be permitted to know their possible futures, and this time he was not among that select few. He was aware of all else, though, aware that she was nothing like he had thought, aware of what she truly was. It was he that cried out, and turned away, and fled, running along the paths of the air with terror chasing him and a body in his arms. Fear not, she sent after him. But of course, it was a little too late. The immediate future became present, then past. Days, nights, and she acted as best she could to steer a course to that place that was more a hope than a destination. And then, one afternoon, she sensed a clear calling. One was dying who would be needed. 
she could scoop him up and take him to those who would heal his broken body before it was too late. She should do that. If he lived, his power would bloom. He would be indispensable, not because he would be powerful, but because of who he would save with his power. One tiny keystone to the arch. She launched from her perch and dove for the spot. The man, now a simple transport driver, though that would change the moment she touched him and became the catalyst to bring out his power, lay in a broken, bleeding heap on the asphalt. There had been a fight, a bloody, terrible one. The driver had been ambushed, but someone had taken out his ambushers and left nothing of them. But... But there was a blank here. She could not see who had come to the man's rescue. Startled by the sound of someone nearby, she looked up and into the gray eyes of a single man, who, until that moment, had not existed for her, had been a blank spot in the canvas of the present. And she looked at him, and his pain, pain even he did not really understand properly, struck her like a blow to the face. Here was loss, betrayal, the death of all hope. Here were tragic flaws, great courage, and a yawning chasm of desperation. Here was one who could have been, could be, noble, as noble as the angels, or a terrible, soulless creature, or simply lie down in despair and die. She saw what he was. She saw what he had been. But what he might be... With a shock, she realized that much about all the futures about him was undefined, and not because the futures themselves had not settled, because there was information being withheld from her, things about this man that the Infinite did not want her to know. Curiosity sparked in her. She opened herself to what knowledge the Infinite would give her. His name was John Murdoch, and although he would need her, he was not ready to deal with her. She noted him in her mind, but her curiosity became more than a spark, it became a flame. But also, there was fear. For the first time, Seraphim knew fear. Why would the Infinite keep knowledge from her? A soft moan woke her to the present again. The man she held needed help, and the world would need him. She broke off eye contact with Murdoch, realizing only at that moment that his pain had made its way into her heart, calling two slow tears from her eyes. Shaking her head with an inaudible sob, she spread her great wings and took to the sky, trailing fire behind her. Mercury slapped two twenties on the counter of the roadside bar. Whiskey. Line em up. The bartender, a gaunt man with frown lines entrenched in a drawn face, took a step back. His gaze moved from Mercury's face to the body bag flung over the meta's shoulder. Mercury hunched over the bar. I swear to God, if a man ever needed a drink, it's right now. This was language the barkeep understood. His hand moved across the bottles on the wall 
and settled on Bushmills Irish. He set five tumblers on the bar with the wooden clatter that ordinarily soothed anxious customers. The only other sound in the bar emanated from the jukebox, an old Aerosmith song. Old men and tattered women stared at the muscular, bare-chested metahuman and his morbid cargo. The hero slammed back two drinks in as many seconds. "'Tough day,' the bartender said with a raised eyebrow. "'Hell of a thing.' "'Hell's the right word for it,' Mercury said. The whiskey distracted him from the whirl of emotions tearing his head apart. He downed two more as if he'd come from the desert. "'Keep him coming.' "'No problem.' An ancient man limped up to the bar with his wallet in his hand. "'You're not paying while I'm in this room, son.' Mercury turned his head wearily. He forced himself to smile in thanks, but the man sought no reassurance. He pushed Mercury's money back to him and replaced it with his own. A second man, younger but still gray of hair, reached over with another bell. Nam, six to eight, he said, and jerked a thumb at the old man. Korea. The blowsy woman at the bar added to the pile. Mass son was in Kuwait she said. Five belts later, Mercury felt his back relax. He looked to each of his patrons. Thank you, he said. Stay away from the city if you can. It's a mess. The Vietnam vet shook his head. Driving in tomorrow with water and food. I ain't afraid of a war zone. The meta nodded. That a friend? The vet indicated the body bag, now propped up against the bar, with his chin. Never met him. Mercury remembered Eisenthaus' face, blackened by bruises. Ramona had filled him in on the man's role in the invasion, which led him to believe that Alex had a special plan for the body. Sorry I brought him in. Suppose you could have left him in the car, the bartender said. I'm on foot, Mercury said with a weary grin. I won't be long. The Korean war vet laid a hand on Mercury's shoulder. It ain't my place to speak for what any man thinks or feels after coming out of war. I remember the faces of the men I killed every day, just as good as I remember my friends that died. His roomy eyes bore into Mercury's. You just gotta make it through each day. No one'll understand, even when they say they do. It's a part of your heart now. The hand moved from his shoulder and waited, outstretched. Mercury took it, wondering what this man had to muster up to survive his war, half a century ago, without metahuman powers or stamina. Just courage and fear. We'll do our best, he said feeling ineloquent. Well, now you got to, don't you? The old-timer showed his rotting teeth in a smile. Mercury finished his whiskey and asked for directions to Ten Falls Road, where Tesla's remote lab hid from the world. The locals all knew it as a cinder-block building distinguished only by the electric fence at its perimeter. 
he hoisted the body bag to his shoulder and left the bar with a wave. Striding through the air, high above the sporadically lit rural highway, the farms, the swamps reflecting moonlight, and the carpet of firs, he tried to resist the thoughts that burrowed up from his subconscious. That woman, that entity, had frightened him more than the Nazis had earlier in the days as they slaughtered his friends. Violence, hatred, death. These were human experiences grounded in the natural world. Mercury had encountered telepaths as well, who could rifle through his mind like a customer in a record store, yet he had been taught techniques to resist their intrusions, the mental version of hiding round the corners of your own house from the intruder. Yet the woman, the angel, had ripped open reality itself to spread his entire consciousness out before him like a dinner table. As a child he had believed angels to show up on one's doorstep with bland good tidings, so were they depicted in his mother's surfeit of Christmas imagery. He had expected to see them at the mall, placid and mild, handing out presents or inviting hobos to soup kitchens. The fiery woman atop the SunTrust building had been neither bland nor mild. As though a star had come to life, she had regarded him as if he were an ant. The casual indifference of the universe to human sentience, so evident in her dismissal of his pleas, chilled him to the bone. A primal fear of the enormity of existence sent him running. Had there been a nearby cave, he would have huddled in it like a Neanderthal terrified of lightning. Mercury concentrated on the resilience of the air beneath his feet. Sometimes he would dash through the air as a normal person would go for a jog, just to feel the sensation of movement in the pumping of his muscles. Echo personnel could be so solemn, thanks to the serious nature of their duties, so he was reluctant to admit how delightful he found his own metahuman abilities. Like a long-distance runner, he could lose himself in the roll of the landscape beneath him, the churning of his legs, the blast of air in his face. Ramona's wry grin welled up in his consciousness, like a remembered candy in his pocket. The plump detective had become a beacon of sanity for him during this miserable day. Glamorous women pursued him relentlessly. His voicemail held a dozen concerned messages from actresses, models, and socialites he dated. Once he dropped off this corpse, he could be in one of their beds within the hour. The company of women, Mercury had rationalized, was a perk for choosing so dangerous a career. Yet Ramona blotted out their faces. Her matter-of-fact analyses of the situation drowned out the worried and loving voices of the other women. She was a comrade. On a night like this, he wanted to share the darkness and the misery with comrades who understood pain and loss, not sympathizers whose caresses were intended to make his grief disappear, as if no one had died. He shouldn't have kissed her. A stupid mistake, and not the first time he'd acted without thought around women. A call from him at so late an hour had connotations he didn't want to tangle with. Not today. In fact... The day had been too long, anyway. Desire for his own pillow filled him with longing. All at once, he spotted sodium lamps illuminating gray brick with pale orange light. The Echo Lamb Building. From his vantage point, it resembled an abandoned gas station. For that matter, the lab appeared to be derelict. There was no other evidence of human occupation within miles, just swamps and wild pines. 
Mercury landed in the overgrown yard, crunching gravel and dried weeds under his boots. "'Last stop,' he said, lowering the body bag containing the dead German metahuman. The bag pinched as it folded up on the ground in an unpleasantly human way. He had succeeded in ignoring the morbid contents of the bag until now. Crap. After zooming through the air, he barely noticed the light, humid breeze of the swampland. An earthy blend of decomposing plants and soil reached his nose. Crickets chirped in the grasses. Bats flew overhead. Nothing indicated that the lab had been used in the last five years. The blue paint on the metal front door had succumbed to rusty intrusions. A deadbolt held the door against his tugs. He could have knocked it down with a good rush, but what was the point? There was no one here to receive a body. I must have made a mistake, he thought, until he glanced at the side of the building and saw the correct address and tarnished brass numbers bolted to the wall. A small plaque with the alchemical symbol for air, Echo's adopted logo, declared it for authorized personnel only. He fished out the pay-per-call cell phone they had handed out at the campus. Alex had programmed into it the number for his emergency crisis center in the Omega Airlines complex. Mercury felt too foolish to interrupt Alex in his efforts to rescue the database from the fool virus. I could call Ramona, he mused. She might have an idea, or at least commiserate with me. A subsonic hum roiled his guts. Could the disrepair of the building be a sham? Tesla had so many secrets, so Mercury learned earlier. He might be standing on top of a massive hidden complex. Jumpsuited mock-ops with clipboards could be waiting for him to find the concealed switch to activate a giant elevator, or something equally absurd from a spy movie. I'm too tired and drunk for subtlety, he decided. He pounded on the metal door, which rung with a satisfying clangor. Hey, it's Mercury. Open up, will ya? The hum increased in volume, accompanied by a rush of air. He scanned the yard for some indication of elevators, platforms, anything. In the nighttime dark, he could only barely make out the grasses waving with prophetic force. The hairs on his neck bristled. His instincts began to scream that he was not alone. Above him, a black circular shape blotted out the stars. It was at least fifty feet across, larger than the war machines that had attacked Echo earlier. No details were visible, just a deeper black than the night sky. The descending object lacked the wicked orange glow of the Thulecraft's propulsion system. Nevertheless, Mercury unslung his pistol, though he knew he ought to flee. Blue lines coalesced on the belly of the silent craft. They joined to form a symbol, a star floating over an eye, the same Mercury had seen in Tesla's buried room. The craft halted at twenty feet above the ground. White light poured out of an aperture, from which a ramp snaked down and gripped the ground before stiffening. Three figures stood silhouetted by the glare. Alex Canyot? A woman's voice called. Not quite, Mercury answered, shielding his eyes. Why don't you come down here where I can see you? 
the figures trotted down the ramp, resolving into the recognizable forms of human beings. All three wore matching two-piece outfits that reminded Mercury of psychedelic-era Nehru jackets, with their raised collars, plastic sheen, and straight seams. The third, a middle-aged woman with a wide, soft face, possessed preternaturally pale skin. She looked over him with a quizzical expression. "'Oh, my,' she said in a melodious voice, with an accent he couldn't place. "'You aren't kidding about not being Alex. I don't think he ever looked so good without a shirt.' She gave him a once-over, as if he were on display at a butcher shop. "'To what do we owe this pleasure?' "'To this poor bastard.' Mercury nudged the body-bag containing Eisenfaust. "'Heinrich Eisenhower, late of the Third Reich, or so he claimed.' He leaned over to peek inside the craft. "'If you folks are from the funeral home, you've really upgraded your hearses.' The woman's brow furrowed for a moment before opening up in a toothy grin of understanding. "'Oh, we are here for the body, it is true. Your witticism makes sense in this context. Would you care to lower your weapon?' "'Oh, right. Sorry.' He tucked the gun back in its holster, feeling embarrassed. The woman emanated nothing but serenity and calm. He recalled Alex bellowing at a screen in his secret room. "'Miss Midas, I assume?' The woman tittered. "'Oh, no, silly boy. My name is Mabel.' She extended a hand. "'Pleased to meet you.' "'Mercury?' Her hand was soft, as though it had never done a day of work. "'I just assumed.' "'It's all right. I see now why Alex sent you, Mercury. You live up to your name.' Mabel gestured at the body. Escorting the dead? Hopefully it's a temporary assignment. Hauling around corpses isn't what I signed up with Echo for. Oh? She raised an eyebrow. Then what? Adventure? Mystery? Excitement? Something like that. He grinned at her. Mabel's forward manner brought out his natural tendency to flirt. Mabel nodded as if she had made a decision. Then you're about to get all three. She turned and spoke a few unintelligible words to her two companions. One produced a slender silver rod from his belt and pointed it at the body bag. The bag floated in the air. Mercury gaped. The silent craft... And now these wands, these people dressed like refugees from a 60s science fiction movie, possessed anti-gravity technology. Aside from the powers of a few metas and an army of Thule troopers, Mercury had not believed anti-gravity was possible, until today. A lot of that going around, he told Mabel. Who are you people? Mabel gave him that sweet smile again and wrapped her arm around his. She led him up the ramp into the dazzling light of the flying saucer. Alex hasn't told you? We're from Midas, my handsome young messenger. You'll be there soon enough, and you can decide for yourself who we are.
Every morning, the lights come on, and that dull electric hum that seems to permeate this place builds to something I can't ignore. A perpetual hum, a constant buzzing, and my skin feels like it's being fried. It's in the floor, the walls and ceiling. It courses through the air itself. I suppose I could have asked for something to shield me from it. I doubt they would have complied, but I could have asked. But no, I won't have it. I welcome the sensation, knowing just days ago that this would have been torture. And I just don't mean the invasive humming, but the cell they've put me in. To be caged up like this, to be denied simple freedoms, would have been too much to take. But things are different now. I'm different. The pain that courses through my skin forces my eyes to open, and the dreams to stop. My dreams are now haunted grounds with faces that I don't wish to see. It's only when I wake that I can block them out. Only awake, I can find some peace. So each day I stay awake for as long as I can. Each day is now a ritual of distraction. I know this can't last, and that sooner or later I'll have to face some hefty consequences. But at least in here, locked away, I can remove myself from the world. Maybe someday I'll be ready to pick myself up, to heal and to fly back into the fray. Maybe. Someday. But the world isn't ready to give up on me just yet. Someday comes a lot sooner than it should. I warm up with stretches, push-ups, and crunches. There really isn't room to do any more. As I finish my last sat, like clockwork, I feel the telltale footsteps of the guard bringing my breakfast. This is all part of the ritual. Between meals, there is nothing, so I have to amuse myself. I try different faces, all from memory. I don't have a mirror, so God knows what I look like. It passes the time. It keeps my face from reverting to its natural state. And it keeps the mind busy. When I pause, when I falter, that's when my eyes close. I don't like it when my eyes close anymore. I don't like what I see. As each boot slams rhythmically down on the concrete, I gauge the guard's weight and distinguishing gait, and I mark his progress. This is now the extent of human contact for me. I'm the only prisoner in the swing. From what I understand, the Nazi Blitzkrieg pretty much cleaned out the prisoner population here at Echo Headquarters. The guards have learned not to talk to me. I'm hungry for any kind of diversion, and I've said some pretty appalling things just to get them to stay. None of them are very quick. All of them have vulnerable points to provoke. So, who is it today? Reeves, the family man? Hollister, the holy optimist? Or is it Faladay in his crusade to bet his way across all of Atlanta? It's none of them. Lying flat, I feel the vibrations coming up off the floor and get a better sense of the man. His footsteps are too heavy and too measured to be one of the guards. A big man, and the steady march screams of military. Sitting up, I'm almost surprised when the cell door opens instead of a tray being shoved through the grate at the bottom. Towering above me is the 
largest echo meta I've ever seen. He's got to be seven feet tall and built like a tank. Stepping in, he places a tray on the ground. I assume it's my breakfast. My eyes don't leave his, not until he turns and closes the door. Wait. He turned away. I've got a clear shot at driving my claws into his neck, and he doesn't care. There's no fear there. Red Genie. I'm Bulwark. Echo Mach 2. I'm here to discuss the terms of your stay. You ever hear your name spoken by someone who believes he is authority personified? It's pretty annoying. As I get to my feet, his eyes fall to the clipboard, and they stay there. No, he's not worried about me at all. His voice isn't forced. He doesn't talk. He rumbles, and it's quiet and reserved, like speaking any louder would pulverize the walls. His understated movements belie his size. He doesn't need to project any weight or authority. He just does. I smell officer training here. This is obviously a man who is used to people following his orders. I don't like him. The terms of my stay? Well, a TV wouldn't hurt. You guys get TiVo in here. He lets that slide. He doesn't even look at me. He just stares down at that damn clipboard. At last, he puts the board behind his back and sizes me up. I read nothing from him. Not a thing. The cold bastard just stares me down. I see you've been practicing your faces, he says finally. Alex Tesla? Did I get them all right? Should be a bit more to the left. I'll have to remember that. Still nothing. Not so much as a smirk. This guy is stone cold. Red Genie, as a metahuman with no public record save your alleged crimes and misdemeanors, you are a ghost in the system. You are not subject to trial or hearing, nor under the jurisdiction of any formal tribunal, except those bound by international law. As such, you are the responsibility of any internationally recognized law enforcement agency that has the misfortune in apprehending you. In this case, that would be Echo. Since your incarceration here, you have remained silent, with the exception of inflammatory statements that have made your guards cry, soil their pants, and scream for your blood hardly productive. Do you wish to make a statement now? Gosh, Ossifer, you really think I should? Bulwark just looks back at his clipboard. I'll take that as a no. You've been active for a few years now, by our records. Alone, or with a troop of other mercenaries, you're suspected of committing any number of high-profile thefts acts of terrorism, and assassinations. You have never been apprehended until now. Alleged crimes? Suspected acts? Anyone ever tell you that you suck at interrogation? This isn't an interrogation, Janie. 
There's enough on you to suggest you've been careful to cover your tracks, but nothing we can hold you on. Not for long. And you know it. So let's stop wasting our time and get to the point. He pauses only to look up. I'm here to offer you a job. He's not looking away. He's watching to see how I take this. I don't bother to hide the surprise. Why bother? He'll take it as a shock that Echo would be willing to take on a known metahuman felon, or distrust, or skepticism. Truth is, I should have seen it coming. The world got hit hard that day. It's all the guards can talk about. Across the globe, the invasion decimated the metahuman population, from both sides, from all factions. There's a shortage of meta-powered people now, and armies like Echo must be scrambling to fill the void. With me, they think they're taking a calculated risk. If they've done their homework, they know of my brief stint as a vigilante years back. Since then, they have stories of a disreputable thief who's been hired to off a few crooks here and there. They obviously don't know the full story. They don't know about the vault, or about the blood on my hands from that day. After Jack took off, the only person that could damn me was the last member of Vic's crew, a trainee meta named Howitzer. And he's dead. My eyes close, and I see him again. Another unwanted face. He's got a wry grin. Appalling, since he's missing both legs now. We were clearing civilians off the highway while Mach 3s went to work on a group of Nazi troopers. He almost made it, until one trooper threw that car at him. His legs got crushed. Stupid kid died from the shock while we were waiting for the paramedics to show. That last look he gave me. That look. I had done it again. I had tempted fate and gotten away with it. No one would know what went down at the vault that day. I read that in Howitzer's bemused eyes as the light faded from them. It's classic, Janie. Everything has to be ironic. The day I finally succumbed to that nagging voice of morality and tried to do the right thing, I get nicked. What's more, I wanted to be caught, to be put away and escape. But even a cell in the heart of Echo's fortress isn't safe. The prisoners were massacred here just days ago, and my one wish to sit and wallow in my own emotional filth is now shot to hell by a job offer from Billy Bob Jarhead. The hell you want me for? Information to start, he says. Like what happened to you that day. You were seen with Howitzer, the only member of Agent Amethyst's squad accounted for. I fight down an involuntary shiver. Thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather gargle battery acid. This is important to us, Janie. To... He pauses and finally lets something slip through his cool military demeanor. He needs something from me. There's something I have, or something I know that this man desperately needs. It's in his eyes. It always comes back to the eyes. His look haunted, and I'm struck with the thought of looking into a mirror. You're a demanding jackass, Bulwark. We're not going to get along, are we? Probably not, 
But that hardly matters. You're needed. So what are you going to do about it? My eyes close again. I see them all. I see Duff's headless body fall. I see John ripped apart by energy blasts. I see my claws tear into that rookie guard. And Vic. I see Vic. Not how she died, but that tranquil look of hers whenever she needed to calm me down. That look of trust. Damn her and that look. Reaching over, I pick up my tray and start to munch on some bacon. So what's the job? I want you to find a few people for us. The sound of wheels on tracks had lulled entire generations of the rootless and restless to sleep, and John Murdoch was no exception to that lullaby. He lay stretched out on top of stacked cases of bottled water. Not yuppie water. This was stuff in plain plastic jugs, pulled straight from municipal water supplies and labeled, Not for Sale, Emergency Supplies. This was the last stretch of track before Atlanta, and this train was not going to stop until it got there. He had time now, time to think, to watch the landscape roll by, to think about what the hell he was getting himself in for. It was a bizarre landscape, too. On the long stretches of Georgia hill country, red clay and tiny farms just barely scraping by, it looked as if nothing had changed since the fifties. There wasn't a sign of trouble from the train, and if the people out there were shaken and scared and scarred by what had happened in the cities, the train sped by too quickly for it to be noticeable. And then the train would slow, sometimes to a crawl, to get through an industrialized area. The Rust Belt towns weren't nearly as bad as the bigger cities, but still. And it would all hit him, with the stench of burning still hanging in the air, the National Guard troops patrolling, the clean-up going on. Near as he could tell, these spots must not have had more than a single semi-load of troopers hit them, one patrol of armor, and none of the fancy flying machines. But one patrol had been more than enough to turn factories and warehouses to rubble. Small-town cops and private security armed only with handguns hadn't even been a blip on the radar to those troopers. John just hoped they'd cut and run, putting their priority on getting the civvies out rather than making a stand. He knew it probably wasn't true, but it was a nice fiction to hope for. They would run for their own families, or just for themselves, or stand there and get obliterated. The better side of humanity usually came through after the disaster, not during it. Once the flight or fight response had subsided, and the horror of everything sunk in. What am I doing? Well, that was the question, wasn't it? Along with, what am I going to do? He hadn't really considered much past get down there, sign up, put what I can do to good use. Someone had given him one of those combination pen and radio novelties, and he'd been trying to pick up FM stations along the way. The reach wasn't much, but it was enough to get scattered fragments of news. Most shocking, Echo had lost half, closer to three-quarters, of its Mach 2s and 3s, 
and there was no real tally on how many Mach 1s they'd lost. He wished to hell he had something useful, something he could use to help rebuild and clear. As far as search and rescue went, a good rescue dog was of more use than he was, augmented senses and all. But three quarters. Good God. No one knew where the Nazis had gone, and they sure as hell hadn't been beaten. True, they had been losing the fight in Atlanta, but in plenty of places elsewhere they'd had it all their own way. But for a reason known only to them or their commanders, they had suddenly broken off combat all over the world at the same moment. The flying death machines had gathered up surviving troopers and bodies and just... vanished. If anything, that made people more scared than the attack. They'd come out of nowhere, gone into nowhere, and who knew when they'd be back? The only defense was Echo, and Echo was scrambling to get back onto its feet. All right. He could help with that. John could still see smoke rising from Atlanta, even from three miles out. It had been over a week since the attack had happened, and the city was still burning. Madness. He'd spent another several days in New York after the day of the attack, helping out with a search-and-rescue effort, before making the commitment to head to Atlanta. Ambivalent did not even come close to describing how he felt about this. It was a complete 180 from the way he'd lived his life for the past five years. Until now. Again. Madness. He was driven to do this, and he wasn't sure by what. Or when it had started. Back at the bar, and all of the glass and fire and blood? Or the redhead kid and more fire? John put it out of his mind. He was here, or just about here. Atlanta. Hub of metahuman activity for most of the globe. It wasn't that he hadn't had plenty of time to talk himself out of this on the way here, either. He'd been freight hopping his way down from New York, although that had been easier than usual. With all of the destruction and death, he hadn't had to worry about getting booted from a train by a railroad bull. Low-paid legalized thugs sent to make sure vagrants and bums weren't stealing things or catching a ride. Oh, there were guards on some of the trains. The armaments trains. Everything else was somewhere down on the list. And there were a lot of trains running, too. The Nazis hadn't taken out the rail system, but they had done a number on the interstates. Without having to worry about getting hassled by some low-rent security detail, his only concerns were catching the right trains and not getting run over by one. He'd even been able to crack the doors on some cars and ride inside, up on the tops of cartons of beans and bottled water. He'd learned a couple of years ago to try and avoid the livestock cars, even if they were empty. Though, nothing was empty right now. Even the livestock cars were put to use hauling emergency supplies. Generators, mostly. Livestock cars were ventilated, so gas and diesel fumes wouldn't build up, but they were metal-sided and could be locked, making them harder to loot from. Generators were at a premium right now. There were rumors this would accelerate Tesla's old dream of broadcast power for everyone. There were rumors that the head of Echo was behind the Nazi invasion so he could profit from that. Conspiracy theories. More madness. And here he was, hiking in towards the city. He hadn't realized, until he looked at a road map, that it was going to be like getting into a fortress in a way. Atlanta was surrounded by a ring-shaped interstate, and from the buzz at the gas station, that ring had been devastated. 
which meant a lot of rescue people, a lot of clearing, and if he wanted to get in quietly, a lot to keep out of the way of. John had decided that the main arteries into Atlanta would be too clogged with fleeing inhabitants, disaster personnel, and much-needed supply trucks. Entering the city through one of the industrial areas would be easier and leave him less likely to be noticed. Plus, it was more expedient, with the train tracks stopping off closer to the factories and manufacturing plants than to any of the roads or thoroughfares. It still didn't make any sense, but he was here. John Murdoch had arrived at Atlanta. He shrugged his small backpack further onto his shoulder. It wasn't exactly heavy for his enhanced muscles, but the crude straps still cut into his flesh after a while. That was a new acquisition. He'd lost about everything he had in the fight, but there were plenty of folks handing things out left and right to anyone volunteering with search and rescue. He practically had all of this thrust into his hands. The backpack itself, green with the letters C-E-R-T emblazoned on the side, a hard hat and goggles, a couple changes of clothing, which he sorely needed, since his shirt and jacket were bloodied rags and his pants not much better. Water bottle, toiletries. Hotels had been handing out their amenity kits as if they were candy at Halloween. He had a couple of them emblazoned with names of places that would have had their security people giving him the hairy eyeball if he'd even looked at the front door a month ago. Funny what rich people thought were necessary items. Sleep mask? Earplugs and socks? Socks? Who would forget their own socks? Who needed hotel socks? John was just getting into the outskirts of the city's heavy industrialized area when it happened. His mind was elsewhere, and his senses were at a disadvantage. The smoke stung his nose and eyes. The sounds of sirens and distant gas explosions from still raging fires all worked against him to cut off any early warning he might have had. It wasn't until he was already around the corner of the brick factory and in the middle of the street that he saw the scene that was playing out. He only needed a glance, and knew the entire story of what had happened. A group of rough-looking men were busy with rifling through an overturned truck, tossing out boxes and crates to be picked over by more thugs, dirtier and seedier than the ones in the truck. An unconscious civvy wearing a corporate jumpsuit and bleeding from the head lay in a nearby gutter, avoiding the goons' collective attention for now. These bastards had taken advantage of the chaos in and around Atlanta to do some damage of their own. An improvised roadblock made of debris and wrecked cars turned on their sides finished the picture. Looters. But wait. Why? This wasn't a truckload of DVD players and high-def TVs, and it wasn't a truckload of food and water either. What could have been so important as to make this truck a target? John didn't have time to contemplate that. This bunch wasn't terribly bright or observant, but they spotted him quickly enough. Someone let out a whistle and everyone snapped to very quickly. Initial confusion, and even a little panic on their part, rapidly turned to anticipation and greed. John was traveling alone, wearing much better clothing than he had in years, with an emergency worker's backpack, and lone people were easy prey. He might be a paramedic. He might have drugs. An unshaven greaseball with a beer gut stepped forward, stabbing a sausage finger in the air at John. Where do you think you're going, pal? No getting out of this, apparently. You deaf? I'm talking at you, pal. The rest of the greaseballs troop put aside their distractions, 
instead focusing on new prey. John unslung his backpack, tossing it back into the corner of the brick factory. The group of ruffians began shuffling towards John, forming a rough semicircle as they approached. This wasn't their first time ganging up on someone. Still, they weren't particularly smart. If they had been, they'd have just shot John and then looted his body. The greaseball, relishing the chance to taunt his next victim, laid it on thick. Just talk to us, pal. We won't hurt you. John kept his trap shot. He quickly surveyed their armament. Pipes, reinforced steel bars, some chains, and a pistol. Really typical stuff. These guys get off on the appearance of it, like something right out of a gangbanger's movie. They like looking like cheap thugs. Normally, he'd have kept walking, let them have their fun. No point in doing something as stupid as getting into a fight on behalf of someone else. Even more foolish, fighting over the principle of something. But... But they were pissing him off. With everything that had happened, this mongrel bunch wanted to inject some more hurt into a situation that already sucked, to take advantage of the misery around them. John felt the hate rising in his belly, felt the disgust and the sickness. It took him about a second to figure out how to deal with them, how long to wait to move. His timing was ruined, however, by the poor chump in the gutter. The driver for the truck started to move around, trying to pick himself up. He whimpered and tried to call out for help. Someone to help him. Crap. The greaseball's head was already turning, his gang following suit. John had to do it now. Hey. You just gonna stand there, or are you gonna get on with it? Bullies don't like being talked back to. The leader of this rabble was no exception. Some smirking skinhead wielding a bent piece of rebar piped up. You gonna let him talk at you like that, Al? The greaseball shot a venomous look to the skinhead, then switched the stare to John. A heartbeat later and he was charging, his pistol held high and ready to beat John with it. John waited for the man to close within a foot of himself before reacting. He sidestepped the thug, using his rooted left leg to trip the man. Off balance, he took his assailant's gun hand into both of his fists, latching on and spinning Al around. Al shrieked in pain and the sudden realization that he was in more trouble than he bargained for. After locking Al's arm under his right armpit, John loosened his grip enough to wrench the gun from the screaming thug's hand, breaking two of his fingers. For spite, John broke the man's arm in three places. At the wrist, the forearm, and the bicep. Al went down, his ruined appendage wobbling uselessly at his side as he writhed on the ground. The rest of the looters were stunned into inaction for a moment. John never stopped moving gliding quickly towards the loudmouth skinhead. The loudmouth was able to raise the rebar over his head in an overhanded blow before John was right next to him. John plunged Al's revolver into the skinhead's belly, quickly emptying the cylinder. The thug collapsed, a bloody hole through his abdomen. John didn't skip a beat, dropping the pistol and moving to the next one. Four more to go. The next two thugs took the initiative, running at John to attack him at the same time. John ducked under the swung chain for the first one, pushing him in the back with a well-placed elbow. The man's momentum carried him forward, out of the fight for the moment. The second looter tried to skewer John with a jagged and twisted pipe. John twisted in place, avoiding the thrust and escaping with only a gouge to his right side. 
He jabbed at the thug's throat, stunning the man as his throat closed up. A front kick to his groin, a leg sweep to trip him, and another boot to his temple knocked him into unconsciousness. The first thug had regained his composure, and was marching towards John while whipping the length of chain around over his head. Chain Thug was taking his time, using the chain to keep his distance from John. When the strike finally came, it was well executed. John barely had time to throw up both of his arms and save his eyes. The chain struck, and then the thug was on top of John, trying to force him into the ground. John fell backwards with the thug, locking him in a bear hug. The cracked asphalt bit into John's back and head as he impacted it, the added weight of the man on top of him worsening the situation. Before the stars in front of his eyes could clear, John reflexively canted his head downward, and then rammed the top of his skull into the punk's nose twice. Blood gushed from it, the thug now trying to roll off of John. Wasting no time, John kneed the man in the groin, rolled out from under him, and locked the punk's arms behind him in a submission hold. Standing up as quickly as possible, John slammed a boot into the back of the man's head, ending him. Letting the dead thug's arms fall to the ground, John was up and in a boxer's stance, hand up and ready. He heard the footfalls of one of the thugs running away. The last one was shaking in place and ready to bolt. Normally, John would have let him get away, end the fight as soon as he could and move on. But he didn't run, and now John was ramped up in the energy. The fury had to go somewhere. Too bad. So sad. John walked forward, grabbing the man by the throat as he moved past him. Holding the frightened punk against the wall with one hand, John started to relentlessly punch the man in the face with his free fist. A good while later, John wasn't sure how much later, he stopped, letting the pulp of the man slump to the ground. It took a few seconds for John to get his breathing under control, to let the blood throbbing in his ears quiet itself. Once he'd had a moment to ramp everything down, he began to look about at the destruction he'd caused. Most of them dead, dying, or wishing they were dying. One that, one that had got away, but that wasn't too much of a loss. He added up the number of thugs again, mentally, and came up short. Over here, you asshole. Greaseball. He was standing over the prone and sobbing form of the driver, who had crawled from his relative's safety in the gutter. Maybe to get at a radio in the cab of the truck, or a weapon. It didn't matter. The greaseball had taken the commotion of the fight to get away and get into the crates in the truck. He had some sort of glove or something on his whole arm. The broken one was still limp at his side, some of the compound fractures bleeding noticeably. How the man was even standing, John couldn't fathom. Drugs, maybe, which wasn't all that uncommon. The glove was humming, with Al the greaseball pointing it at the head of the driver. You dead meat, pal. You killed my crew and busted up my arm. Nobody does that. You hear me? Spittle flew from his mouth, punctuating the curses and questions. John had had enough. He didn't know what the glove did, but he didn't like the ominous hum it was emitting. With all of the techno-gizmo-whatever-junk floating around nowadays, it could be part of some new bit of power armor, or some meta's arsenal. Or it could be a toaster for all you know, idiot. He looked at the driver, then the glove, then the last remaining looter. 
The driver would probably get killed as soon as John did anything. The greaseball knew it, too. Except for one small fact. Screw it. The first lance of flame bit into the thug's uninjured arm at the elbow, severing it cleanly. Al fell backwards, his mouth wide in an O of silent agony. He waved the stump around in the air, unable to clutch at it with his other arm. John walked forward, watching the thug push himself away from the driver and John with his legs. John seethed and raged on the inside. More fire answered that rage, sweeping up the thug's body in slow, measured waves. John took his time, hating everything about the man, about the world, this city, the driver, and more than anything, himself. John finally stopped when there was hardly anything left of Al, former gang leader, looter, and all-around scum, to burn. There was a scorched silhouette of a person against the asphalt. John felt sick looking at it, thinking of the shadows against a brick wall in Hiroshima. He turned away in disgust, facing the driver. John kicked Al's gloved hand into the gutter. The armor on the glove had kept the hand intact as he walked up to the driver. Are you all right? The driver was clearly in a bad way. No, more than out of it. He was dying. John knew the look in those eyes. That gray face. But dying or not, he was afraid. Scared to death of John. He tried to drag himself away from John, dying eyes fixed on John's face, horror transfixing his own. That look drained everything from John in an instant. The rage, the high from the fresh kills, the power, all of it gone. Except for the disgust. It came back and redoubled, stronger than ever. John started for the man to try and help him to get into a hospital. But he thought better of it. This guy was going to do himself more damage trying to get away from John. Leave him alone. Maybe he can get to a radio and call for help before he passes out. He walked back to the corner of the brick factory, stepping over the bodies in the intersection. Shouldering his backpack, he started down the street again. He made sure to fix his eyes intently on his own feet. He couldn't, wouldn't, look at the driver again. And then, it was a flash of light, a wash of fire in the sky. Instinctively he ducked. Instinctively he looked up. Instinctively he felt himself ramping up inside again. Fight or flight. But with him it was always fight. Right down to the end of the road it was always fight. But what alighted beside the driver was not what he expected. His mind flashed back to that moment in New York when that poor, poor kid had exploded all over the sky. The wash of flames, and bursting through them, that being. That fabulous winged creature cradling the kid's still form in its arms. She. It was a she, oh yes, a flawless body clothed in flame. Had scooped up the driver in her arms as effortlessly as if he weighed nothing. The flames licked harmlessly at the driver. His eyes were closed, but his chest was still moving. And the expression on his face had gone from pain and terror to, impossibly, peace. He even smiled a little. 
Huge wings of flame stretched out behind them, poised as she was to launch into the air again. And only after taking all that in, John Br- And only after taking all that in, did John raise his eyes to hers, to look into her face. Beautiful. Terribly beautiful. Inhumanly beautiful. He looked into her eyes and felt her gaze lock with his, and the impact of that drove him to his knees as his insides went to water. He felt his life, all that he was, all that he had been, being laid out in front of her, felt her examining it in that nanosecond of time. A pair of tears, like crystal pearls, slowly moved down her cheeks. And then the great wings cupped air, thundered, flashed, and she was an arrow of fire across the sky, then gone, the driver still held in her arms. John got slowly to his feet, then stood stock still for a couple of beats before he finally came back to life. He shook his head, then arced it to look at the sky. Insane. You have to be. He shook his head again to clear it before setting on back down the street. The carnage he left behind was never sufficiently explained, and was blame on an intergang rivalry by the authorities when they had enough time to worry about such petty things. A week after what had seemed like the apocalypse, the city was just starting to pull itself back together. Vicky's neighborhood had actually come through in pretty good shape. They had never lost services except for a brief period during the invasion itself. Well, all but the internet, that is. That was down. Vicky wasn't surprised. And thanks to her folks, she had a back door into DARPANET, which operated on old-fashioned copper phone lines and DOD trunks so she could still talk to people who had accessed the old system. She had even managed to crawl, almost literally, out to the supermarket after three days, retrieve her car, and stock up on staples for Gray. She, damaged goods that she was, actually had staples stockpiled for herself. She could live quite well for a month on the MREs stored in an otherwise unused closet. They were there against the possibility that she would one day be too frightened to leave her apartment for that long. Right now, that wasn't a possibility. It was a probability. She had been attacked twice on the way to get her car by roving hoodlums, and even though she had left both of them under heaps of dirt and asphalt, she had been nearly mindless with panic by the time she'd gotten to the grocery. The suspicious and hostile looks of the people furtively scuttling about the place had sent her into a cold sweat even though the looks eased when they saw her fill her cart, not with precious bread mix, there was no bread to be had, or condensed milk, none of that either, but with cat food and cat litter. She had nearly run people down in her haste to get back home, and once there, she had locked the doors and windows and vowed not to leave again. Then, a week after the invasion, there came a knock at the door. She sat in her chair for a moment, frozen. The knock came again. Slowly, stiffly, she got up. 
she forced herself to go to the door. Trembling from head to foot, she peered through the peephole. On the other side of the door was a nondescript man in a dusty Echo uniform, very much the worse for wear. Echo? What could they want with her? Charles Burns, ma'am. Echo Mach 1. Is this Victoria Victrix Nodge? Yes, she replied cautiously, and did not even put her hand on the lock. He waited, and when nothing more was forthcoming, sighed. Will you let me in, please, ma'am? Without waiting for her to answer, he held up his ID to the peephole. It seemed genuine, all right. Reluctantly, she took down the chain, undid the bar locks, flipped the deadbolts. Finally, she opened the door just enough for him to squeeze through. Then she beat a hasty retreat to the farthest chair in the room, but remained standing. Burns, oh, the irony of the name, stood there looking at her, and sighed. Ma'am, you registered with Echo a while back. It was rejected, she rasped. I know, ma'am. He looked at his PDA. Says here you can't leave your house? He glanced around the room. Ma'am, Echo needs all the able-bodied metas we can get. We lost a lot of people a week ago. We could sure use you. She shook her head violently. I can't, she rasped. I can't. He stared at her. She knew what he saw. Someone young, apparently healthy, nothing outwardly wrong with her. And out there, out there were metahuman and unpowered Mach 1s of Echo, some wounded, some worse than wounded, all shell-shocked and all of them doing the work of three people or more, because there were so few of them left. His face grew impatient. Ma'am. I can't, she said through gritted teeth, bile rising in her throat. If I could, I would. I can't. She was drenched with sweat now and probably white as a sheet. He stared at her and finally sighed. He put a small card down on the end table nearest him. If you change your mind, he said, shook his head again, and let himself out. The moment the door closed behind him, she ran to it, slamming home bolts, chaining it up, locking herself in again. With her barrier against the world sealed again, she put her back to the door and slid down it, landing with a thump on the carpet. She began to cry, silently. Eyes squeezed tightly shut, tears etching their way down her cheeks. She felt the pressure of gray rubbing up against her legs. Pressure would be all she would ever feel there. Would he have understood if she had managed to strip off a glove and show him her hand? Tell him that her entire body was like that, scarred from neck to feet? Would he have understood that the psychological scarring was worse, far worse than the physical scarring? And even if he had, were there any resources at Echo left to deal with someone like her? If there were, they surely had their hands full right now. Easy, kiddo. The voice in her mind was soothing, pulling her slowly back from the abyss in her own mind, from the contemplations of guns, knives, ropes, of her failure. There it was, they needed her at last, and she couldn't even leave the house. 
He had been right. They had been right. She was worthless. Useless. Hey, you're plenty useful. I can't use the can opener myself, you know. Gray's wry comment cracked through and startled laugh out of her. She opened her eyes to see his green ones gazing unabashedly into hers. Check out that card he left. There's a Darpanetta dress on it. She scrubbed at her eyes with the back of her hand. So? So maybe you can do computer work for them from here. You know. Contact list. You have the inside track when it comes to the magical community. Find out who made it, and if they aren't an echo, persuade them to join up. She bit her lip. Yes, she could do that. In fact, most of the mages she knew were not an echo. Mages were very good at hiding what they were. So go write him an email. Tell him what you can do for him, what you can't, and why. She pushed herself off the door and stood up. She picked up the card and went to her computer, bringing up DARPANET and the primitive email program it supported. Mr. Burns, she wrote, I'm sorry our meeting went so badly. So, dear audience, that is how, from my perspective, it all ended. The day, the week when the world didn't just change, it shattered. Everything was different after that day. Literally everything. The old rules didn't apply anymore. Life was no longer a kind of game of cat and mouse for the metahumans of Echo, a game where everyone more or less played by the rules. We had met the enemy, and he was so unlike us that we were left floundering. And we were going to have to play by some new rules. Old enemies would become friends, or at least allies. People we had thought were allies were going to show a very different face. We were going to have to make it up as we went along. All of us. From me shaking and crying with fear in my own apartment, to the seraphim on her perch above what was left of the city. From Bella Dawn, dragged reluctant and protesting away from Sin City, to Tesla in the bowels of Omega Airlines' secure computer center. All of us. That old Chinese curse had come down on us with a vengeance. May you live in interesting times. And the times had only just started to get interesting. To many of us, it felt like the end of everything. And oh, how wrong we were. It was all just beginning. The wait is over. The first book of Steve Livy's Aquapura trilogy is available now from Subatomic Books. Meet Crixisoran, a plumber on an epic odyssey of redemption through an ancient world. Want to try before you buy? Listen to the free audiobook or download the free ebook or subscribe to a chapter a day through your email. Log on to www.aquapuratrilogy.com for more information. Echo is hiring. 
log on to www.echometahumans.com and join the Echo Mock Street team. Your mission, spread the word about the Secret World Chronicle.